This episode is brought to you by Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. Well, hello. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Wednesday, July 15th, 2020. This is the 257th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a top chef from the Caribbean, and I will be introducing him fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip. And then later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to be your best ambassador. Whether you have an official title or your motive is simply from the heart, it doesn't really matter. What does, though, is that we take our position and our passion seriously. And when you, we use our voices and our platforms to advocate for our causes, brands, and beliefs, bringing awareness to them for the better good. All we really have is our truth and our integrity. So let's take pride in what we stand for and be the best ambassadors we can, bringing a positive light to what we believe is right. That's my tip today. Now, on my last show, I had mentioned that my guest today was going to be Claire Reichenbach the CEO of the James Beard Foundation, um, who had previously been on my show, and we were having her on again, but we had some scheduling conflict. So instead, I have a fabulous chef on the show who's cooked several times at the James Beard House, and we're going to hear all about that. So my guest is Digby Stridiron. He is the... He, yeah, how are you doing? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let people know a little bit about you before we get to chatting. Yeah, um, he's a native of St. Croix, U.S. Virgin Islands, where he is currently the chef of Brada, Emma at Cane Bay, and Breakers, Royer, Breakers Roar in Christensen. You could say that Digby was born into food, and we're going to hear all about that too. He, his restaurants have received numerous accolades, including USA Today's 10 Best Restaurants for his previous restaurant, Balter, in St. Croix, and Brada, that has been called the heart of the Caribbean by Food & Wine Magazine. He's a community leader and has served as a culinary ambassador for the U.S. Virgin Islands and received the 2014 Chef of the Year Award from the Caribbean Tourism Association. And he also founded WICA, West Indian Chefs Alliance. So, hello. Welcome to the show, Digby. Thank you. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm, I'm better now that I'm talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> I was blessed. I was blessed. How, how, how are things with you? Where, where, where are you right now? Uh, things are amazing. I'm here. I'm in the North Shore, St. Croix. So, I'm at Alma Cane Bay right now. We're opening up tonight. So, we're just, at, you know, just enjoying the view. It's, it's a beautiful day out here today. It's a beautiful day in the Virgin Islands. Yeah, you know, I was kind of kicking myself a little bit in my as my decision. 
I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm joking when I say this, but in my decision uh-huh. to have you on the show today, because yes. I was, you know, in my research and my uh, looking at all your beautiful restaurants, I'm, I'm craving to be in the Caribbean. <laughs> yes, that's, see, and that's the plan, you know, to come visit a piece of America's paradise, you know, you come down here and visit. I know, but I don't know if, I don't know if we're allowed to come right now. I, yeah, right now is not a good time. Um, I, think, I, I don't know if we saw MSN, but we just got um, labeled as like the hottest spot in America right now for COVID, which is not not great, you know. Yeah. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, it just that... came out this afternoon. It was just new. Yeah. But I mean, it's a beautiful people are coming. They're enjoying it. Which We're staying safe as much as we can, you know. Yeah, well. I mean, it's what's happening is 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 happening everywhere around the world, and I didn't. That's I didn't realize you had it um, that bad right now as well. Um, mm-hmm. In New York, we're we're doing we're doing really good here right now. Um, yeah, I think the concern is that it, it can come back. Um, so, but let's let's go. Let's start. I always start out with my guests and mm-hmm. hear about their background a bit. So. Yeah. Um, Tell me, tell me this, how, how were you born into food? <laughs> well, like I always said, coming from St. Croix, like you're literally, you're born into food. I mean, every event, any event that you go through anywhere, funerals, um, birthday parties, it doesn't matter. Like food is a very big part of our culture and our community here. And uh, so you grow up. I mean, my grandma was always cooking in the house. So was my father and different family members. But uh, it was like when I was 16, I was in 12th grade. My dad uh, told me it was time to get a job. And he took me up to the Buccaneer. And that's when I started working at the Terrace Restaurant as Garmage. And that's kind of like where it all started at. That was like 1998. So, yeah. And you, you went, you decided to go to cooking school? I did. Um, in 2000, I started in the industry first, though. I wanted to get the experience, you know, because, you know, back in the days, how they used to say, ah, you don't need to go to school. But I felt like it was important. So I went back. I went to school in 2011. Yeah. And that's okay, how I went to then... the Cordon Bleu. Hmm? Uh, well, it, it, I, I, I went to two different campuses. I started in the Orlando campus. But I was involved in a car accident that left me not able to walk. So I had to come home and regroup for about four or five months. And after that, I, I moved to Atlanta. And that's when I completed school. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. We were on our way to do a, a VA benefit. Um, it was during school. It was a fundraiser. And I was just driving the car and someone just zoomed out of nowhere. And uh, they hit the car and it just it changed my life. And that was kind of one of the things I credit because, you know, before that I was kind of just living, enjoying things. But there's, it comes a point when you, when you can lose something, you know, and you realize how important it was. I, I didn't know if I was ever going to be able to cook again in a sense of in a kitchen professionally. I wasn't sure if my body was going to be able to take it. So going through those feelings, I think it kind of pushed me to be a, to, to, just to appreciate what we have, you know? Absolutely. Well, I'm so glad you were able to recover from that. I mean, that's thank you. That is scary, and you're right. When things happen to us, you you realize you take you know what we take a lot for granted. Um, it's like sets in reality. But were yeah. you um, in? I I saw um, that you had worked for uh, Norman Van Aken. Was this where yes. were you at Norman? 
Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I was in Grand, I know him I was from in, his Miami location in yeah, Carl Gable. Yeah. So I never got to that one. I actually, I got to with Norman in 2011. I was at, I started school and uh, someone said they, they, he was hiring and I went down and being completely honest, I wasn't familiar with Chef Norman before that, you know, but when I get there, I'm meeting with Chef Camillo and I'm looking at the menu and I'm just like, yo, this menu is like, it's really cool. Like there's like platano and like, like it's speaking kind of like, like Caribbean food, you know? And uh, I remember walking through the kitchen the first day and I'm passing through the hot app, not hot apps, but the saute station. And one of the chefs is sitting there doing the, the chicken breast and it's stuffed with like mofongo and it's on top of like black beans and there's like a platano chip on it. I'm like, yo, like, that's like my food. <laughs> I could do this. Like, I want to work here. And for me, that was like a, a, a breath of fresh air because prior to that, I had stopped cooking for a couple of years. I had left and I was just training in mixed martial arts because I wanted to find like more, more out of life. You know, I was just kind of in that stage where it's like, what am I doing? Am I just cooking? Am I just working in restaurants? I want to do more. And I think coming out of that and working with Norman was just, it was enormous for me. You know, I started learning about ingredients and technique and why technique is so important. You know, I started buying books and researching. I started thinking differently, you know, and that's the kind of environment that Norman created in his workspaces, you know, and it was a blessing, 100%. One of the most important things I did in my life was work under Chef Norman Van Aken. Wow. Yeah, no, he's very influential and um, his, his restaurant, you know, I had dined there um, mm -hmm. and it was it was really special. I mean, it was a long time ago. Uh, so what what led you um, to open your first restaurant in St. Croix? And, and when yeah. when did that open? It was this was Baltimore. Yeah. Balter, yeah. So I was working with at Lumon Park, and that's when I got a job to come down to St. Croix and um, be an executive chef. But it didn't last long at all. I came down, and we had this idea of, of the thought process. But once I got here, they didn't really want to change the menu from French to West Indian. So it just had like three, four months where it was just event after event, just kept changing everything. Um, I got offered the position to work as the culinary ambassador for the United States Virgin Islands. And then like two months later, I was awarded chef for the year and I started really researching. And that's when like the energy started for Balter and my business partner reached out to me. And the idea was we, we wanted to create a restaurant that was just as great as any restaurant in the world, but it was specialized in who we are as Kushans, not just West Indians, you know, it would tell the story. So for Balter, it was important that, you know, the plates were made locally, that that the concepts, everything wasn't just local, but it had a native feeling to it. So we really worked hard to not just create a farm to table or a sustainable project, but we really were trying to push wild to table where we as chefs were going out and forging our own ingredients and finding new things, um, going back to the source where it came from and just just putting beauty behind of our cuisine because a lot of times when you see West Indian food or Caribbean food, it's always like the same setup. You know, it's like meat in three, right? It's like, what meat do you want? And you get your sides, you get your rice, coleslaw. And the thing is, there's so much more to our culture and our cuisine from the Tainos, the Kalinagos, the different Africans that came from different places. Um, St. Croix, particularly for 270 years, we were Danish. So if you look at our bakery and our cuisine, it is different from other places. You know, and 
I just feel that at that point when people were looking at Caribbean food, it was just Caribbean food. And I'm looking at, you know, Denmark, I'm looking at Lima, Peru, I'm looking at all these places in the world, just they're doing all this amazing work to highlight where they're from. And I just wanted to highlight where I'm from and people to take pride in it, honestly. Yeah. And uh, how many, what, what, the, when did you move on from there? And um, I know you're yeah. now involved with three different restaurants. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so there was just a little, um, we started Balter in 2016, but, and it was about a year and a half I stayed. And I would say we, I left Balter in August of 2017. Um, I spent a little bit of time in North, in, in Charleston. We were working on a project that never came to fruition um, with me as a part of it. So that's when I decided that I really wanted to get back home and go back to the root of things. You know, when we did Balter, I realized how much... I jumped ahead as far as for the locals here, you know, for a lot of people, they didn't really understand what I was trying to do. So my idea is I wanted to create Brata in place to say, let's work on authenticity. We're going to go to Frederickstead, which is the home that Queen Mary built. It's one of the first free towns. There was a big revolt there, a labor revolt. And uh, for us here, it's very important to us. And this town is a town where you don't see a lot of, it's a, not a, there's not a lot of action going down, but there's a lot of people moving to this town and a lot of people are investing into this town. So to me, it was important that it wasn't going to lose the local feel. So I wanted to create something because there's this term in the Virgin Islands that we use. It's, a, it's called Alawi. And Alawi means like when we do stuff, I'm not doing it for myself. I'm doing it for Alawi. And that was kind of the concept was we're trying to create something for the people of the Virgin Islands to really just be prideful in when they're out and they're eating and they could be prideful in the cuisine and doesn't have to change. It's just done so beautiful. And I think that's what, 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 what was different about Brata is we didn't put barriers on what island and we didn't try to say, oh, this is Puerto Rican and this is, this is St. Vincent. It was one cuisine that represented Alawi, from the Arawakan to the Taino to the Kalinago to the African, and all the way to modern. And you know, it was a beautiful concept, you know. And right now, we're we're in the process of moving it, though. At the at right now, moving it to another location in Saint Croix. Yes, we're moving it to another location. Okay. Um. Well, I'm I'm like I have to get down there. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I waited for you. You know, I waited for you, man. It's nice. I know. So is are your so you mentioned the locals? Are your is has Brada been and and even going back to Balter? Were these mm-hmm. restaurants that um, were primarily uh, attended or you know their diners were locals or were they? Yeah. Are they tourist yes. places, destinations? Uh, for me personally, um, especially at Balter, it was beautiful because of the support that I got from the community. I'm, bo- I'm a born and raised Virgin Islander. I, my father's family goes back over 10 generations. And my grandmother and mom's side, they don't come from anywhere else but from here, between um, Fajardo and Puerto Rico, Vieques and St. Croix. Because we have a very big connection with Puerto Rico and like other islands, you know? So we have the rice and beans, the mofongo, we speak Spanish, we do salsa, like it's a part of our cultura, just like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, 
What were we well, saying? Sorry about that. I lost my train. Oh, no. No, I was talking about um, your clientele, whether the difference yes, between yes. locals and, and tourists uh, or is, so you know. For me, I've, I get, it's been everybody at the restaurant. You know, the locals, they come out and they support me. They know me growing up. They know the message that we're trying to do. My restaurant, we hire locals and I make sure we train. Um, right now at AMA, Rico's been with me for nine years. Kevin's been with me for 10 years, both locals to St. Croix. Um, they don't have college degrees. They didn't go to school. We just we just worked hard and we gave opportunities. Because a lot of times people, you know, a lot of times people want to come to the, the Virgin Islands with their preconceived idea of what the restaurant's going to be. And they bring in their management and they hire, like, you know, the locals to do the the dishwashing jobs and the busing jobs. And for me, like, I can't empower my community like that. Like, I empower my community by having more chefs, you know, that are from here, that represent this area, that take the same pride that, that I have in my food, you know, that they want to go to the farm and they want people to eat a good oxtail. And not just oxtail, but you're going to eat sellable beef that we're willing to go down to the market to get, you know, and they understand that. Yeah. Well, what about, I mean, I grew up in Miami, so I yeah. am aware or um, about hurricane season, <laughs> which yeah, I think yeah. has over the years gotten more threatening and more and more yeah. hurricanes than when I was a child. Um, mm -hmm. So how, I know, I mean, you guys were really affected with Hurricane Maria, um, yeah. but how, I mean, how, how do you, how do you deal with that? And, you know, yeah. And what what was what did happen to you and your restaurants? Is is that when you were thinking of moving to Charleston? So when Maria hit us here, I was actually in Charleston at that moment. Oh wow! Um, yeah, I had just just left. It wasn't even two weeks. I wasn't even out of here for two weeks before that hit. Um, but on general, because I've been here through hurricanes in my past, I've been here from Maryland, Hugo. I mean. My whole life, I've my very first restaurant I ever opened opening night was Hurricane Edward, and all the food spoiled. Um, the reality is, and you, you're gonna hear this through the Caribbean. There's a thing sometimes. It's like it is what it is, you know. I don't, I can't control the weather, and I understand that. So when these hurricanes come, like I don't, that chef thing goes down a little bit, and I become more like I need to be. I need to call my mom. That's what's important to me, making sure we're boarding up houses, going by the neighbors, making sure everyone's safe. Like, that's how my dad raised us. You know, after the hurricane, you come out, I'm not, you know, we're going to feed people, but the very first thing is, is everyone safe? You know, you're going through the neighborhoods, you're checking on, checking on your family members, you know, and to me, there's a sense of just community that sometimes we forget that. And the hurricane was always a reminder for us here that we are a small community, you know, so... Yeah. I'm going to tell you, we welcome in the hurricanes, but we ain't scared of them. And when they come, we just take what it is and we move forward. Because as a community, we will always come together. You know, the hurricane ain't going to change who we are here. It's just going to make things harder. But, you know, I think it's the people here that it makes it easier. I remember when we did Marilyn, you know, my dad was like the next day. He, he has the whole community, all everyone together. Like, you know, we got to do a community watch. We're going to like take shifts. And I was like 12 years old or something or 14. And we're like taking shifts, helping, keeping the community safe. And, you know, that kind of mentorship and seeing that it's important, you know, it helps, it helps build who you are. Absolutely. And, and also um, with COVID that's, uh, yeah. 
the new hurricane that came through, uh, how, how has that affected you? And did where what's the status? I know you said you're moving Brada, but what's the status with Ama and Breakers Roar? Yeah, I mean, COVID was hard and there's no way around it. All of us were affected, but there were blessings in it. Um, Ama turned into a soup kitchen. We partnered with My Brother's Workshop and the World Central Kitchen. And we partnered with St. Thomas. Together, we put out over 36, 35,000 meals during this time frame between me and Chef Julius Jackson and St. Thomas. Wow. It was amazing. Because you know, that was my first that was my first time ever having to step up like that. And I realized, like, me and my team, we can do this. Um, so we're at the stage where we're opening back up right now. And we're, we're social distancing. We, 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 only, we don't have the main dining room. We're using the upstairs because it's all outdoors. And we're just going very slow. Um, with breakers, we're taking a break and we're going to close this week and we're going to spend this week because we're realizing it's going to be a little bit more long-term and it's a smaller space. So we need to make sure that the decisions we're making isn't just for right now, but we're making decisions that's going to benefit us long-term and we're taking care of our staff. Um, COVID's hard because with my company that we have, it's not just the restaurants, you know, we have hotels that are part of us and construction teams and Earlier in the earlier parts of COVID, we lost we lost a staff member to COVID. Mm, you know? Sorry, I understand. And uh, yeah, thank you. Horrible. It was hard. It was it was I. I you realize we can't, it's, it's not a game. You know, it's not important for me to keep people out there when it's not safe. You question the things that you thought were important, and um, we try to learn as much as we can from this, and we take it very seriously. And I remember because it was around St. Patrick's Day, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, because St. Croix is known as one of the biggest St. Patrick's Day parades. And it's just like, nah, you know, as a community here, we understand the importance of our elders out here. And we take it very dear to us. Like we, we are a matriarch society here. So COVID, anybody that's from here, we, did, we didn't play it. We stayed home. We quarantined. And it's just... You just try to do the right thing. You just try to get through it together as a community versus, you know, when we see these people not wanting to wear masks and, yeah, that's not that's not us. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, that's the smart way to go about it. That's in New York City has been taking it really seriously, yeah. too. Um, I think because we were hit so hard, but um, it's... Um, it's. I guess I'm proud of New York and what we're, what, how we've been, how we've been handling it. It sounds like you're, you know, you're proud of what's happening there. Um, it's, you know, it's something we've never experienced before. Um, but people like me want to get down, to, down to St. Croix, and yeah. and if we don't, if you don't take these precautions and like do the right thing, you know, tourism isn't isn't going to be able to come back. <laughs> yes. Yeah, if we if we keep this outbreak going, it's going to be really hard to return to the tourism industry because I feel, <clears throat> I mean, just like with the cruise ship industry, you know, it's going to be hard to come back from this, man. Right. You know, and I think we all are going to look at what we're doing and it, we're all going to be making changes. You've seen restaurants across America have been making changes, you know. It is what it is. And, and while it's it's definitely not a good thing, it's just making us all rethink what we're doing, what's important to us. Were we doing the right thing all along? You know, and there's nothing wrong with questioning yourself every now and again, an effort to make things better. Absolutely. So are, what are what are your 
goals moving forward? Do you want to open more restaurants or are you good with, with what you have right now? Um, so um, COVID actually stopped me from opening. We were scheduled to open Cream & Co., the ice cream shop, and Caroline's. Caroline's would have opened in March, but I pushed it back right now until things could get down, get, get itself together because it's a breakfast spot. And this is not the time for it. But um, no, we're going to keep opening restaurants because for me, when I can open restaurants, I'm creating job opportunities here. My companies, we offer full benefits. We offer medical, dental, and a rolling 401k at 3%. So for our industry, it's, it's giving people here an opportunity to get to get these kind of jobs. You know, we're training. We're creating different places to eat. So, you know, it's it's work, but it's it's the right kind of work, you know. And it's good yeah. for the community. So what is it you love most about being a chef and restaurateur? Uh, there's so many things, man. I mean, being a chef, it's a beautiful career field. I know a lot of people look at us right now. There's a lot of lights about what we do. But, I mean, we feed people. We work with farmers. We, we, it's a beautiful process. If you ever went to a farm and understood, like, where the animals are coming from and how things grow and understanding the seasons and, you know, I, that's, like, kind of part of my joy, you know, going out in the water and catching fish myself or catching a lobster and just taking my time and really giving that ingredient the love it, it deserves, you know, and, the team that we work with every day, you know, those faces that I see. Like I said, Rico, I remember when Rico started, he's my cousin. His dad called me when he was 15. He says, my son needs to do something. He wants to be a chef. You mind if he stays with you? I was like, what? <laughs> you know, and uh, a couple events. We opened Balter together. We opened Brata. And now I just promoted him today as a CDC for Ama Kane Bay. At 20, yeah. 20, 24 years old. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by that. It's an opportunity that he has, you know, and I'm excited to see what he's going to do with this opportunity and how he's going to mentor other people. And the joy of, you know, somebody very special, the old commissioner, Commissioner Doty, she was a commissioner for tourism. She would always tell me, each one, teach one. You know, and it always sticks out in my head how important it is when you teach someone something, you know. And that's when you realize that life's not about how much change you make. It's about how much change one can make. And that's a quote that just stays there with me. And it's important that my team understands that. So those are the things to me as a chef that's important. It's the food that we're putting out, the quality, where we're getting from. It's supporting the farmers. And it's my team, building with them every day, watching them become adults or watching them grow, become a family, you know, when they're getting married or whatever situation it is. Them allowing me to be a part of their life too is just—it's a blessing. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. You've, you have those are all great um, tips and and ways mm -hmm. to to live. And uh, uh, yeah, I'm I'm taking note. So for my yeah. future for my future episodes to share some some of your insights with with people on um, yeah, good stuff. Yeah, the thing is in St. Croix, it's a different kind of lifestyle, you know, because we are American, you know, but it's a different part of America. And the value systems, the things that we see growing up, the hardships, the things we know, um, it changes you as a person. And I think it gives us, like I said, when you mix those different feelings of it is what it is, and then also that 
you know, we got to get it done. You, you start understanding who we are as people. We come from very rebellious people. When you look at the slave revolt in St. John, when you look at the labor with Queen Mary, the labor revolt with Queen Mary, Queen Matilda, you know, these are all major parts of our, of our culture. And if you go down to Grove, there's this beautiful baobab tree that's probably at least 20 feet wide. And there's like a little brick there and it has a story. And when you're growing up understanding your history like this, it changes you. You know that this, this is tree was the people that assisted Queen Mary in that, re, in that rebellion. They took the three queens and they sent them back to Denmark. But as for, as for the people of here, they put them in that hole and they buried them and they burnt them. So there's a reminder of us growing up that that tree is there, this beautiful African baobab tree. It's, it's one of the most beautiful trees I've ever seen in my life. And it's in the middle of this underpoverished neighborhood that's, you wouldn't expect it. But our leaders always allowed us access to our culture and knowing who we are. And our, you know, our parents, they always taught us these things. So growing up as a Virgin Islander, it's, it's a different aspect as being American, but it's still a part of America. Yeah, and I, I feel, I've been thinking about how I don't, I don't feel there's enough coverage and and conversations about what what's mm-hmm. happening down there um which is so why i'm really glad and fortunate to be talking to you and that we met yeah. many years ago at uh, the worlds of flavor conference and that you were yeah. part of that um, that was amazing it was and what i mean the 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 other the big thing that's been happening now or with protests and with black lives matter yeah. and um, you know, there's a lot of change and conversations mm-hmm. happening, um, at least at least here. Is that mm-hmm. something that's happening um, down by you as well? Are you, yeah. you? With us, it's a little different. So our police here, they're from here. So I don't have the same problems that, that's happening in America, but I'm very aware of it. I've had situations when I visited America and I've experienced it. So it's yeah. very different coming from St. Croix. We ha- our issues are more of entitlement and colonial. But we have people that have different generational wealth than we have because, let's be real, my great-grandfather was a hibaro from Puerto Rico. He was a farmer. He didn't have the same opportunity. So when you see a lot of the people that come from the mainland America and their access to wealth, when they come to the Virgin Islands, a lot of times they're not incorporating with what we have here they want to force what they want on us and you see that often where someone might buy a hotel and build a hotel and deem it their own movement and create a whole movement around it that the community around it doesn't accept but they're willing to force it upon them and these are things that you see very often here because we're part of america so the same way i can go you can go to arkansas and buy property you're going to be able to come to the Virgin Islands and buy property. The only difference is the Virgin Islands, specifically, we're going to talk about St. Croix, though. It's the only part, and when it comes to America, where it's my governor's black, my congresswoman's black, all my senators are black, my teachers were black. We're, I'm not a minority here. I'm a majority. Between us and Puerto Ricans, Latinos, whatever you want, Hispanics, 
Yeah. We are the majority here. So there is that pride of growing up and seeing that, you know. I remember when I first went to Mississippi in the military, I was really confused when people would talk to me about racist matters because I, I wasn't experiencing that growing up. I didn't understand that. That was something that I learned when I was in America. For me growing up here, I saw more of an entitlement and, people, and more of that more col colonialism aspect. Not as much racism. Yeah, it's very, it's interesting. And yeah. thank you for sharing that. I think it's, yeah. you know, all of this bringing it's, awareness and having these conversations is important and knowing, yeah, the differences and it's, 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 it is because um, when, when often when I was seeing like, you know, black restaurants, I'm always like, there's a lot of black restaurants here. Like actually <laughs> there's more, there's more black restaurants than, you know, restaurants yeah. that are owned from people that are not from here. You know, and that's one of the amazing things that we have here in St. Croix because we did have like an oil refinery, Hovensa. And what was, it was, I'm not going to say cool, but you had people from all over the Caribbean, from Trinidad, Jamaica, St. Vincent, Antigua, St. Kitts, doesn't matter. But people were applying for jobs at this refinery and they were getting it. They were making about $1,000 a week in the 80s, 90s, and they're bringing their families here with them. So very similar to how World War II affected America and the cuisine there is how we were affected here with Hovensa. Because now in St. Croix, you had Trinidadians, you had people from Antigua, and they come in with a moras. So next thing you know, you're watching all these little shops open up everywhere. You got ladies selling rotis and doubles out of the house. And now you had this, this immense, just, I don't want to say a mashup, but that's, that's the word we use. We have a mashup of culture here. You know, we have the Trinidadian double and the roti, Puerto Rican mofongo, while we're still making red grout, which is native to St. Croix and potato stuffing. You know, and if you go one island over, you don't have the rice and beans. And if you go Puerto Rico, you don't have the roti. You know, so it's a very yeah. unique. It is. And whenever I hear doubles, I just, I want doubles. Oh, yeah. Doubles are amazing. I grew up eating doubles. My mom would stop by this guy every morning. He would sell the doubles for a dollar. Every morning going to school, we had doubles. I really, love a double. Yeah, really Okay, so let's take a little break, and we'll mm -hmm. come back, and we'll uh, play my speed round game. We'll talk some industry news, and we'll have my solo dining experience as a final question. So this is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Ethan Frisch, co-host of Why Food and co-founder of Burlap & Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. We set our partner farmers up to export their own crops for the first time, and they get access to a whole new market here in the U.S., and we get access to spices that other companies can't source. We're honored to work with restaurants including 11 Madison Park, Blue Hill, and Chez Panisse, as well as thousands of home cooks across the country. Visit us at burlapandbarrel.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Digby Stridiron. He is the chef of Brada, Emma, and Breakers Roar, Roar in St. Croix, U.S. Virgin Islands. He's in the islands now. 
which sounds so lovely. Um, and uh, we're going to play my speed round game. So, uh, Digby, what this is, is I'm going to name a couple things and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Chocolate or vanilla, cool. That's that's my 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 sample question. Got it. <laughs> optional to answer. <laughs> so I get to ask, so there's more than chocolate and vanilla. It's just sample. Got it. Let's go. We're ready. Okay, here we go. <laughs> I love it. Eat in or eat out? Eat in or eat out? Yep. And I got to give the preference like chocolate or vanilla? Well, which if you prefer to eat in or you prefer to eat out. Got it, got it. Okay, so now you got me. I got lost. I was so, I got so excited. Chocolate I got or lost. vanilla was do I'm, you prefer chocolate or vanilla? I know. <laughs> I'm ready now. Let's go. I'm ready. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's all good. So eat in. Eat in. Okay. Wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? Cocktail, preferably rum. <laughs> of course, as if you could say anything else. Rum, uh, what we say here, rum is boss. Rum is boss. Yeah, that's the question we say. Yeah. A lot of expressions. How about a tasting menu or a la carte? Tasting menu. Small plates or large plates? Small plates. Communal table or chef's counter? Oh, chef's counter. <laughs> I got to be honest. That's honest. I, I love a chef's counter. I love them. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Tipping. How about soca or reggae? Soca. Soca, good for your soul. <laughs> I was reading. I was reading about your James, one of your James Beard dinners, and it yeah. said that you had the soca music. Ah, uh, uh, man, it feels good. Yeah. Soca just makes you feel like the Caribbean. It feels like love, man. It's like love. It's like love in your ear. Yeah, sounds nice. Okay, yeah. I got a few more. Yeah, Cooking man. outdoors on a live fire grill or inside over a stovetop. Oh, outdoors all day, every day. Open yeah, fire. and that was when I, last I saw you in Charleston when you're cooking over a grill. Yes, that was fun. Yeah, we're doing the curry. Yeah, that was fun with the Johnny Cake. That was good. It was. Two, it was, and that was my Baca. last trip. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. That was like the last of it, yo. Because the following week, COVID shut down, and it was like, ah, oh, that was the last good time we had. Yeah, and the last, the last way. I don't know if we're gonna see. Um, if we're going to see food festivals, you know, in I that know. format or how it's going to change. So we're, we were lucky to get that one in. That was like the last hurrah. We're the last ones to do the last food festival. <laughs> no. Yeah, I know. No. I that, but I love but it festivals. was delicious. And um, I you. saw you there, which is great. And you fed me. Yeah. It's terrific. Yeah, man. Okay. My last two are cheese plate or dessert? Dessert. And Manhattan, Brooklyn, or St. Croix? Oh gosh, no. St. Croix, all day. We got Obviously. beaches on palm trees. Yeah, we got music. It's you know, I love <laughs> New York though. I always tell people like New York, like I, I got to get up there because it gives me um this feeling, this energy. New York is so contagious, you know, and there's so much going on. And every time I go there, I just leave there so inspired. I love it up yeah. there. Yeah, that's 
it's good to hear. Like yeah. you need us and we need you. <laughs> no, hundred percent, man. New York. Uh, there's so many big moments for me in New York. When we did um, the Chef of the Year, that was one in New York. Um, James Baird dinners. I've done. Man, there are many I, between. Yeah, between St. Croix, because we've done four in St. Croix. I've done a couple at the Beard House, and we did a couple on the road. I've done, I want to say, like 11 to 13 of them or something like that in the last four years. So That's it's incredible. Yeah, I really believe in it, James Beard House, man. I'll be honest. Like, you know, to me, it's not big on like the awards and all this stuff because, you know, I'm in the Virgin Islands, so I understand how the voting goes. So for me, it's not really about the award. It's about, one the advocacy of what I was able to learn. In 2014, I was just a guy from St. Croix, a, the culinary ambassador, and they, were, they invited me to the boot camp. I didn't realize I had a voice. I didn't realize what I can do. And they activated me to become that person, and they believed in me. And even over the years, they've mentored and sent me things that they continue to allow me to speak for the people of the Virgin Islands. And one to me, the coolest thing out of everything was when Rico was going to school, he didn't get this scholarship, but he was able to apply for a scholarship through the James Beard House. And there was like the little box that said VI, you know, and it was cool. Yeah, It meant a lot. You know what I mean? You watch how we were able, we were more incorporated now versus like 10 years ago, you know, we, we, yeah. we had a voice in the Beard House and it's cool. And I appreciate them for everything they do. So that's why I always try to raise funds for them and advocate for them. And they, they got to be around for a while. Yeah, and they're doing a lot of work now with with COVID and Black Lives Matter. They're having like tons of mm-hmm. of seminars, and I've I've tuned into many of them. Um, they're yeah, they're they're doing really good work. Uh, so, okay, so for industry news, um, I picked up this story that kind of blew up on I guess on I I found it on Instagram stories more than anything mm-hmm. else, but. Uh, there was an article in the Los Angeles Times, and the title is yeah. Squirrel Owner Jessica Coslow Addresses Moldy Jam and Food Safety Allegations as Former Employees Speak Out. This article is yeah. by Garrett Snyder. Um, and I, I mean, I've been, I've now been to Squirrel. I've been there twice on, on Los Angeles tr- trips. I don't know. Have you ever been there, uh, Digby? I have. I haven't. I haven't been there. I've been to Los Angeles only once, but I haven't been to Squirrel. But yeah. I've been. I've, I was familiar with the restaurant. I was very familiar with the restaurant. Yeah. Well, that's so. That's that's. I mean, that's interesting. Or that's like kind of why this story is is a big story because here's yeah. you're a guy from the Caribbean who's you know of Squirrel. It's about in L.A. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a very popular restaurant, um, mm-hmm. and I've had their their ricotta toast with jam and it's, yeah. you know, it's been delicious. And, and, and I know Jessica Coslow has gotten a lot of press and she's, mm-hmm. she's very, you know, she's, they, it's a, it's an extremely um, popular restaurant. And so this, the story is yeah. coming out about how there's this mold situation with the jam. Mm-hmm. And she also has a book coming out like next week yeah. on a squirrel jam book. And it's yeah. just, I, yeah, I think people are wondering, first of all, like, I mean, it's, 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 you know, the safety and the, the health reasons and, and all of this that's going into, you know, how she was operating. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, how is this going to affect the business? And I, I mean, it just, it's, yeah. it's like, it's a big, I think it's a bigger story because 
she is a you know has is a bigger you know a chef who's who's very is very well known yeah i mean this this is a tough one man i read i read it i read it yesterday and also read the different the different sides of it where you know she didn't understand that the mold would get down that far and different things like that what i would say in st croix you know we we things ferment very fast here you know if i leave something like cream if i leave it out on my counter for three to four hours it's gone because of our temperature, the heat, different things. When you're fermenting, it's a scary thing, man. You know, making jams and jellies. So, and I know how fast, especially when you're not using preservatives and you're not using sugars, how fast it does mold. But we do have a responsibility to make sure that we're checking on it, you know? It's a tough one. This is a very tough situation. Yeah, it is. And she's she has said that she uses a lower sugar content yes. in her jams. And, um, I mean, I don't, I'm sure, I know, I'm sure she's not like, no one's, no one's trying to give mm-hmm. anyone product that's, you know, not, not what they think is safe and, yeah. and good. And, and it's, and I've, I've had her jam. It is delicious. It's, um, I know, yeah. and I've list, I know she, she's been selling it. Um, like you could, you could get it, you know, mailed to you. She's doing a yes. large, um, delivery business. But I think they were saying that the delivery business is cooked different, though. Like they, they, it goes through the hot cycle, the hot, the hot bottling is what they were saying. But uh, oh, yeah, and different than what she has at the restaurant. Than what she's doing at the restaurant, you know, which maybe you know, I recommend just probably doing the hot bottling for everything. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. It's a tough situation to be in, you know. Me personally, I, with jams and jellies, that's I understand it. You don't want to put a bunch of sugar in there, and the prop, the prop, the purpose of doing it is not to add all those preservatives and things you don't want to put in there. But ultimately, we have to keep the people who come. Just like with COVID or anything else, as a chef, our responsibility is to keep people safe with food. Like it's a, it's a responsibility. So it's a hard one. No, yeah, I agree. It is a hard one, and I yeah, I just it was one of those. There's been you know these stories that kind of just pop up and take over social media if you're. Yeah. Uh, restaurant and food person <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. there's this that, that's been a big story that's it definitely took over everything every on facebook every time i'm going around i'm seeing the ricotta toast right now and it's like you know it's a hard time you know because they're already it's already hard with covid you know so you know, yeah I, I really uh and i saw what this, the team was saying and i just my heart goes out to the team and i hope everybody pulls it together and you know they move forward in a positive yeah. light me too. Mm-hmm. So that was that was the news. Um, my for my solo dining experience this week, um, I took a I took a little road trip out to to North Fork, and so um, I'm going to share my experience at North Fork Table and Inn. So here's the rundown: the location five two two five Main Road, Southhold, New York, in North Fork. As I said. The concept is a new American restaurant housed in a historic countryside home with a seasonally inspired menu. The chef and owner is John Frazier, who's a longtime champion of farm-to-table cooking and a Michelin-starred chef. So why did I dine out? Well, as I was out um, in the area and, um, you know, I know Chef John from restaurants he has in the city and he had recently taken over the kitchen and um, they had recently just recently opened um, after COVID so it was it was good timing so I said I'm gonna do this 
So my experience, um, it was actually their second night of service um, that I got a reservation and uh, I booked it through Resi. Um, I didn't know if I was going to sit outside or inside because actually out in North Fork, um, the rule there is they you could have 50% capacity now indoors versus in Manhattan. It's still all just outdoors, no indoor dining. Um, but when I got there, they sat me at one of the patios. Um, it was lovely. Servers were wearing masks. Tables were socially distanced. Uh, the menu was offered on paper as well as you could scan it if you wanted to on your phone. Um, I saw Chef John. He came out, greeted me. Uh, they, the team was really wonderful. I had conversations with with many people, and um, they were all lovely. They they offered me a sparkling beverage at the beginning, um, and I I don't drink, so uh, they came out with a, a ginger beer drink instead for me, which was really nice, and I appreciated. So, uh, what did I get? I ordered the charred Orient beets with Goodale fresh cheese, sesame and flax seeds, and cilantro. And then I had the Montauk tuna with turnips and jalapeno salad and fisherman's preserves. And both of those are very local. Orient is a part of North Fork and Montauk is over in the Hamptons. So it's all it's all on Long Island uh, local dishes. Um, there was bread and butter with the olives that came with it and two little sweet bites at the end of the meal. So my take? The beets were divine. I mean, seriously, one of the best beet preparations I've ever had. It was just delicious. And the tuna was really nice. It was, it was, you know, I asked for it raw or by how chef's choice, and it was super fresh and, and a really nice preparation. So the ambiance, it's a pretty patio and a gorgeous inn, very, very lovely setting. I'd say it's perfect for date night. Interesting tidbit, uh, John Frazier and his restaurant group, JF Restaurants, purchased North Fork Table from... Claudia Fleming, who's my guest on episode 207, and this happened back in January, um, and he is continuing to keep with the ethos of the previous owners. Um, his restaurant group includes also The Loyal in New York City and 701 West at Times Square Edition, which are both temporarily closed. Actually, I read The Loyal, I think, is opening today for outdoor dining, um, and his other restaurant, Nick's, is um, it actually permanently closed, which was one of the, you know, there's been closures due to COVID. Um, so personal fun fact, um, the day before I went over there, um, it, it was about five minutes from where I was staying, and uh, they have a, a food truck outside, and I got a lobster roll and charred corn aloti, and I had, you know, I sat in their picnic area and ate, and um, that was that was really lovely. Um, and I also ran into the chef there and also his publicist, Jesse Gerdstein, was out there. It was just one of those small world things. And I had a lovely conversation with Rosemary, who's running the truck. Just give all these people a shout out. Okay, so the cost of my meal for dinner was $46, not including tax or gratuity. Would I go back? Yes, the website is northforktableandin.com. Um, have you, Digby, have you ever met um, Chef John Frazier in one of, your, one of yeah. these events? Yeah, I've met John Fraser before, yes, at an event. <laughs> so I was like, I, I mean, I shouldn't be surprised. It is one of those, you know, I think I know I know you and I know chefs from going to events. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, so maybe uh, maybe you'll cook together one day. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always a blessing. You know, cooking together is like, it's, it's, it's a cool thing, you know, especially when it's two different cultures. Like one of my favorite things is when I get when I get invited to like events in like California or like Arkansas, 
you know, and it's like, you know, my idea of food and the way I approach is very different from my counterparts. And I love seeing the way they do things. And it's just as chefs, we just, you know, we love passing knowledge along to each other, you know? Yeah. So it's beautiful. I remember it was in Arkansas where actually I found out from something from Daniel Hintz. We were in um, Arkansas. He calls me out. He's like, did you know bacon comes from the Caribbean? I'm like, what is he talking about? And he's like, bro, let me break this down for you. And we start going for it, man. And you realize that the idea of jerking was the idea of smoking meat. And that when the Spaniards came in, they're watching the Indians and they're like, well, we could do the same thing they're doing too. So they start doing this. And and these guys were known as buccaneers. So when people started seeing the buccaneers smoking the meat on the bucan, that later in time became known as bacon. And you're like, whoa. Who would know? And that's a part of Taino culture (laughs) that... For me, when I look at American culture and food ways, like so many of it is like Taino and native. When you look at um, like the idea of the tamales, the idea of just how much we smoke and we ferment and we preserve and how sustainable we are. To me, that's just big parts of American food ways, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's time for the final question. So my next yeah. guest is Camilla Marcus. She is the founder of Westbourne Cafe in Manhattan, Soho, and she's also a founding member of the Independent Restaurant Coalition and a co-founder of Roar, which is a coalition of New York City-based restaurant tours. Uh, She's been very active um, fighting for restaurants. It's been it's been great to see her work. And I've been to a restaurant, Westbourne, and it's it's lovely. So, uh, Digby, what would you like to ask Camilla? Yeah, man. Um, Camilla, I would love to ask uh, in in respect to everything that's going on right now, what is the best way for me to go to my Congress man or woman and ask for change and to advocate? What is the best route? Is it sending a letter? Is it a phone call and following up? If she could get if, if I could get any kind of advice for that, that would be greatly, greatly appreciated. I will ask, and I, I have a feeling she knows the answer. <laughs> yeah, man. That's yeah, good. Man. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, this has been so so joyful to talk to you and connect, and I, I wish you the best, and I really Thank hope, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not joking when I say I want to get down there. I really do. Yes. I, I've, I've, been, I've been to many parts of the Caribbean, but I have not been to St. Croix. And St. Croix is special about, you know, St. Croix is a place once you reach, you never forget it. Because people always say, like, St. Croix is the island where people live. It's a different vibe. If you look at the chain, you realize we're a little bit off the chain. And that definitely changes how things are here, you know. So we definitely yeah. got to get you to come down here, man. We're going to work on it. We'll make it happen for sure. We know that. We got that. I love it. Yes, we're going to work on it. Thank you. And um, I wish you the best with your openings and everything happening. And um, let me know when you, you know, when when you can get back to New York City and we'll connect here as well. Always, Sherry. Yeah, so, thank And it's you always so a much. pleasure talking to you, too. And I appreciate you uh, giving me the link up today, yo. Really, I really appreciate it. Uh, you're welcome. My pleasure. All right. My guest today has been Digby Stridiron. He is the chef at Brada, Ama, and Breakers Roar in St. Croix, U.S. Virgin Islands. You can follow him on Instagram at Chef Digby.
And you can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllInTheIndustry.com. And all of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks to my engineer today, Amanda Wang, and thanks again to Digby. Um, I hope you will tune in next week when I'm back with Camilla Marcus. Uh, and uh, be safe and be well. And thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.